And so this evening we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1. We are entering into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,500 years old. And from God's perspective, that's not much. But from a human perspective, that is a really, really long time. I mean, if you ever have an opportunity to sit down with a serious historian or someone who considers themselves a, a serious historian, some of the, the miracles of history are having written copies of stuff that's uh, seven, 800 years old. That's miraculous. You know, the fact that they have uh, partial transcripts of the trial of Joan of Arc is like hard to believe, but it, this stuff exists. And we're talking about the things that you and I read uh, are 35, 3,500 years old, written by the hand of Moses, you know, the, uh, the person that uh, sociologists claim to be the most influential human being in the history of the world because he influenced Judaism, influenced Christianity, influenced Islam. And so they peg him as number one. Jesus is like three or four, you know. But they didn't, of course, sociologists are not really too boned up on all that stuff either. So the hand of the Lord at work in his people. The book of Exodus, the second book of the writings of Moses. And the challenge about about doing this, about hearing a Bible study and taking it in, or even just sitting down to read this book on your own. Pray for the Spirit of God to speak to you, because there is so much here. There's so much more than the smartest of us can really take, get a grasp of. There's just amazing, amazing, miraculous stuff in the text of these books. And to one of my challenges is to try and really have a perspective of what I'm reading because it's, I don't know if you have this experience, it's so easy just to buzz through stuff as you're reading it and not really take it in, not really grasp what's going on in the situation. So I encourage you to, to work in that direction, to wrestle with God in his word to get what he's placed there. Uh, for the background of Exodus, of course, we've got to go back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and that's what Genesis means. In uh, Genesis chapter 15, we have God laying out for Abraham, the beginning of the Hebrew nation. God in Genesis 15 lays out for Abraham the situation of the book of Exodus. In Genesis 15, uh, directly following Abraham's battle with uh, uh, four kings, as uh, these four kings came up against Sodom and Gomorrah and defeated Sodom and took Lot's nephew, uh, Lot, Captive, and Abraham went with uh, some some people who were confederate with him, and he conquered. He beat these people. He got all their, their uh, belongings, as well as all the people who were taken captives back. And in Genesis 15, he is. It, it, it seems that he's kind of unsettled. Genesis 15:1. It says, "After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward.'" And Abraham has these conversations with God throughout the scripture. In verse 2, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Very famous passage right there in verses 5 and 6. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the, Chaldees, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought them all to him and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite one another. And he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. This is a crucial scripture. This whole passage, you have God's <laughs> promise for Abraham for the Hebrew people, all tied up in a neat little package. 
God's promise for Abraham's descendants, Isaac, and many, many more. God's promise for the land, still to this very day not fulfilled completely. Like so many of the works of the Lord, there are things that can only come to pass through hardship and difficulty in the lives of God's people. God's work is always opposed. So we we have God's promise for this process by which Abram's children will become a great nation. And if you look at Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, and this is the key on Exodus. Then he said to Abram, no, certainly your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterwards. They will come out with great possessions. So the book of Exodus is the historical account of God's people settling in the land of Egypt at God's direction and God's deliverance, bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And that's the the operative phrase. That's how God recounts it. And this, of course, the Exodus coming out of Egypt, the people being um, allowed to escape the hand of bondage with great uh, substance in their control. This is the most recounted issue in the entirety of Scripture from cover to cover. The Exodus is recounted more than any other event in the history of God's, God's hand upon mankind. Also in this book is the beginning of the journey to the promised land. At the same time, taking the focus of the people of God from a family, about 70 to 80 people total, to a nation of more than 2 million, somewhere from 2 to 3 million people or more. Providing in, in the book of Exodus the groundwork for the next 1,500 years of God's people to be connected to him, they're laying that foundation in the law of Moses. In 40 chapters, God's going to do all this stuff. The time frame of the events listed in the book are controversial. At best, you know, a big disagreement between the 13th and the 15th century B.C. Got to remember, as we're talking about uh, centuries B.C., that they go backwards. Uh, uh, the higher the number, the further away it is, as opposed to what we deal with on this side of the birth of Christ. All we know is, folks, for you and I, we have the Scripture. And we are, from the perspective that we're going to present this book to you in the next 25 weeks, uh, we're persuaded that is, it is the inspired word of God. Now, now, you may not be. I don't know everybody here. But that's the perspective that we're going to present to you. And so we recognize that the author of this book is the Holy Spirit of God. And then that the Lord also used Moses, for the greater part, as an eyewitness to these events, to set down the words on paper, actually probably on sheepskin, And the book itself points to Moses' authorship in many places. Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God telling Moses, write this down. Uh, Exodus 24, 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes. So, Plainly, God is instructing Moses to write these things, make an account. This is for our perspective that we can understand. And throughout the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, foregone conclusion that Moses is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Pentateuch. And again, from our perspective, I'm embracing the, pers- the issue that this, the writing is around the mid-15th century B.C., older than what... Most academic scholars will like in these days, and we may get into that a little bit as I'm going along tonight, uh, probably written in the early travels of the nation from somewhere around Kadesh Barnea, which is the place where following Mount Zion, God stopped the nation and prepared them to go in and take the promised land, and unfortunately also the place where they, they thought they had a better idea. You know, I don't, we don't, they didn't think they could do it. The name Exodus comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament about 200 years before the birth of Jesus. And it means the departing. The Hebrew name of the book, if you talk to a rabbi sometime and you want to make sure you're talking about the same book, the name of, his name of Exodus is, Now These Are the Names, which is generally the way Hebrew books are titled by the first few words of the book. That's the name of the book. 
And so if you look at verse 1 here, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So earlier I said, you know, we're taking them from a family to a nation, 70 to 80 people, and that, of course, the 80, closer to 80 would be the numbers including Joseph, his sons, and their children, which his, his children had children by the time that we were arriving uh, at the beginning of this book. Or, uh, plainly, this is the continuation of the book of Genesis. The length of books in the Old Testament, because the New Testament's on like a pretty much completely different format. In the Old Testament, books were written in scrolls. They're written on rolls of vellum or sheepskin, okay? And so the length of a book was the reasonable length that you could use effectively to be able to read through a book. Um, today, scrolls are much longer, but they're, they're largely ceremonial. Like, for instance, you go into your average synagogue, they will have the entire Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, on one scroll, 125 feet long. But they, trust me, they have much better scroll tech than we, they did back in the day of Moses. The um, tech, technical issue of making a scroll is probably very similar from Moses to the time of just before the birth of Jesus. And uh, if you go to the Isaiah scroll in, in Qumran from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's 66 chapters long. It's about 24 feet in length. And that would be about the average size of a reasonable Hebrew scroll that you could actually use. They wouldn't have been at all much longer than that because it makes them not practical. Now, today they make them really long, but they read out of books. And the thing about the New Testament, all of the New Testament manuscripts from the time of Christ from the time of the New Testament, earlier stuff we've got, you'll notice they're all listed codex. The word codex means book. That's what it actually means. They didn't write on scrolls anymore in the New Testament. They're reading out of both sides of a piece of vellum or sheepskin and actually had things bound together in books by that time. The oldest copies of the New Testament that we have are in book form. And so that major difference between that and the Old Testament time. It's interesting that both Israel and Jacob, both names are used in verse 1. I find that it's kind of curious. I think it shows God's perfectly willing to identify him with either. Israel, meaning ruled by God and indicating the new nature that God desires for his people. Jacob, Yaakov, heel catcher, maybe not so much, but he's, God's not a pet's his name. He's stuck with it. The traditional listing for the sons, not including Ephraim or Manasseh which are Joseph's sons. Joseph's sons are embraced at the end of the book of Genesis by Jacob as his making Joseph his firstborn. He gives Ephraim and Manasseh status as one of his, his 12 sons. And so in doing that, he gives Joseph status in his family as his firstborn. But they're not listed here. This is a more traditional list. It's a little interesting, the order. And whenever you see the listing of the 12 tribes, the order is always a little tweaked and a little different from one place to another. And it's interesting. Sometimes you can know why. Like, for instance, in the book of uh, Revelation, the listing of 144,000, you don't have Dan. Dan is not mentioned. And Ephraim is not mentioned. And we deduce that that is because of the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And that, you know, they're being punished. Although Ephraim is certainly there because Joseph is there. And, and so you have... Manasseh and Joseph. So Ephraim's there, but just no name mentioned. And here, the order is a little bit interesting. You have Leah's sons first, which almost never happens unless you're just looking at oldest to youngest. Then Benjamin in the middle, who is the youngest of everybody. And then Bilhah's sons, which is Rachel's maid. And then Zilphah's son, which is Leah's maid. With Joseph at the very end, because he didn't travel down from Canaan with everybody else. Again, usually Rachel's kids, then Leah's, then Belha's, then Zilpha. If you want to know who's maid is who, an easy way to remember that is B, then Z. Bilha's, Rachel's maid, Zilpha's, Leah's maid. And Leah is, you know, at the bottom of the pecking order. So easy way to remember that. Keep that in mind. 
Um, Whenever I see an unusual list of names in the scripture, it always makes me curious. I always want to know, why? Why is this list this way? And so, I mean, this list is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Gad, Asher, and then Joseph. And I'm thinking, well, okay, what does that say in Hebrew? Behold a son, heard, joined to praise. There is a recompense Exalted son of the right hand, a judge wrestling a troop. Happy Yahweh has added. So I don't know if that makes too much sense, but I thought it was interesting. In verse 6, we have to time travel forward a little bit. Uh, And Joseph died, probably going forward, what, 50 to 70 years, something like that. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. In the course of this chapter, from from verse 1 to 22, you're going to have about the passage somewhere between 250 and 300 years in there at at some point. Um, The end of the chapter ends, you know, the, the scripture tells us that the children of Israel according to God back in Genesis 15, we're going to be 400 years oppressed. Well, they may have been there quite a number of years before the oppression really started because the children of Israel had a really good relationship with the Egyptians, especially during the whole life of Joseph, as long as he was alive. And so their stay, it tells us actually in Genesis, no, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 12, uh, about verse 40, I think, that the total time that they stayed in Egypt was 430 years. And so just important things to keep in mind as you're going through it. Um, his, of course, his brothers all died. Joseph was the second youngest. And uh, although he did have a hard life, again, probably 50 to 70 years after the death of Jacob, good guess. Uh, Jacob dies, Genesis 49:33. And they were likely gathered to their people at that time. They passed away, went to be with the Lord, were buried in the land of Goshen, where they lived, in a place of modern excavation going on there called the Varus. They're, you know, <laughs> archaeologists are as thick as thieves. They're everywhere. <laughs> They're digging up everything in Egypt. Um, all that generation, meaning the 12 brothers, their children, and those that had traveled to Egypt with Jacob, All that generation died. So the only people at this point that were left were those that had been born in uh, in Egypt. Now, all those people who had been born in Canaan, here's a trick question for you. All the children of Israel, where were they from? Well, Benjamin was born outside of Bethlehem, not too far from there. But all the 11 other brothers were all born in Syria, which is kind of interesting for Israelites. You know, all born in Syria at at their Uncle Laban's residence up there. And they came down. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, hold on to that one. (laughs) Um, The Lord blesses them. And notice, he doesn't just bless them in a normal sense in verse 7. Children of Israel, fruitful, increased abundantly. That's, okay, that's the high end of normal. Multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. To me, that says, this is a little unusual. This is an extreme expansion. So this reads as if there is an unusual multiplication. Now, whether that is the hand of the Lord or by natural means, either way, it's still the hand of the Lord. God's got a plan. He's involved. He's doing, you know, we should take note, folks. The vast majority of the work that the Lord does, he does by natural means, which doesn't make it any less supernatural. It just means that it's proceeding according to the rules and the designs that he invested a long time before the event. He placed those rules there. He he set the structure of what was going to happen. Then the natural outcome was according to his will. Still the work of the Lord. So the land was filled with them. That's really the bottom line. A potential, in a very brief time, the first generation in Egypt... uh, Verse 5 says 70 people coming from Canaan. Joseph, his sons, his grandsons. The third generation from Jacob. So in, in less than 250 years, we 
we could see a huge multiplication of population filling the land of Goshen. For those of you who are like into geography at all, land of Goshen would be the eastern Nile Delta up against the Mediterranean in that area right there. Just on the east side of the Nile Delta at the top. That's the land of Goshen. Um, so keep in mind, uh, here and up until the end of verse 7, this is a very good situation for these people. They were in a, a, a complementary, a symbiotic relationship with the Egyptians. Uh, they were allowed to live in the land of Goshen at the request of permission of Pharaoh. They were the guest of Egypt. They were the guest of Egypt. Keep in mind, whenever you're a guest, it's always a temporary thing. It's so you want to be sensitive to how temporary when you're somebody's guest. Always a good idea. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is a loaded phrase. Verse 8. The new king, who is this? New dynasty? What? Somebody who just didn't know Joseph? The popular theory, and pretty well supported from artifacts and archaeology and historical studies, and the writings of Flavius Josephus, the first century historian as well, is that at this time there was uh, an invasion of Egypt by foreign military force that took over the country and became the rulers of Egypt for a period of a, from about 150 to 180 years, somewhere in there. Uh, these, these people, this nation that took over Egypt, are commonly called the Hyksos, okay? Meaning what that really means is rulers of a foreign nation or Josephus badly translates it, shepherd kings. But that, these guys are not Egyptians and they come in out of nowhere at this time, take over Egypt and then so obviously they're not going to have a, a AAA rating relationship with the Jewish people who are there because they have no, no history of interaction with these people specifically. Uh, the Hyksos make up the Egyptian 15th dynasty. And while their existence is really well illustrated in history, and in Egypt and otherwhere, otherwise, secular experts have all kinds of ideas concerning who these people are and where they come from. And you can hear all kinds of really wild ideas. You know, they're the Hurrians, they're the sea people that came from Crete, you know, they came, washed up on the beach and took over. And I mean, just all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I find this fascinating because we know a few things about them for sure. Plainly, they're Semitic, meaning that they are descended from Shem, the son of Noah, like the Jews are descended from Shem, uh, while the Egyptians are descended from Ham, the other son of Noah. Okay, uh, Psalm 105 verse 23 talks about that Egypt's people are descended from Ham. But we have some more interesting information in the scripture concerning the national origin of these people or where, you know, geographically they come from. In Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, as the Lord is kind of recounting the national history of Israel in Isaiah chapter 52, in verse 4 it says, Thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Okay, so whoever it is that's beginning this oppression of the Jews... They are Assyrian, which takes us from, you know, somewhere in the area of Iraq, near the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, a little bit to the west of where Babylon would be, but that's, that's the place. They're Assyrians, according to Isaiah 52, and I like his insight on this for no other reason. He's, a, you know, time-wise, he's a lot closer to the point of impact than we are. And, uh, he has, and this is the Lord speaking specifically. Again, that, that quote identifies the Hyksos as coming from the area of early Assyria. Also important to note that these invaders brought a huge cultural contribution to the nation of Egypt. Uh, new technologies to the Egyptians, bronze working, different kinds of pottery, uh, pottery uh, breeds of animals that were never there before this time, before the 15th dynasty, new crops, in warfare, they introduced the use of horses and war chariots into warfare and battle. Egyptians never had war chariots before the 15th dynasty. These Assyrians brought them in and established them. This became the meat and potatoes of Egyptians for a thousand years in the future. Uh, improved battle axes, improved advanced fortification <laughs> techniques. Because of all these cultural advances, 
the Hyksos rule became decisive for Egypt, Egypt's latter empire in the Middle East. And we believe these people are just responsible for the beginning of the trial of Israel's cruel bondage in Egypt and in the first 150, 180 years in which they ruled. The, the uh, Israelites were there in the land of Goshen for the whole thing. Genesis fifteen thirteen, the Lord said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. That's a long time. 400 years for your family to be afflicted as slaves? And I mean, we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking about a huge, huge group of people. You know, really, I was just thinking about that. 400 people who were enslaved in the United States were enslaved in the United States on this continent for a, a little more than 200 years, you know. But 400 years, these Jews served in, in Egypt. Even though these foreign rulers had great military powers, they were concerned, which because the children of Israel were so many, and what do they say back in, in verse 7? The children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. So we have a quote from this ruler who knew not Joseph, specific to one person, verse 9. He said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now think about that for just a second, okay? Here's the deal. If this guy was an indigenous Egyptian, how reasonable is it for the children of Israel to outnumber all of those in upper and lower Egypt? Another interesting thing about Egypt, as we're going through and we're all BC and we recognize that the calendar goes backwards, uh, bigger numbers are farther away. Lower Egypt is north of upper Egypt. So if you want to kind of put that in your brain somewhere, somebody talks to you about, about upper Egypt, know that it's further south than lower Egypt, which is further north. Um, anyway, not very reasonable that the Jews should outnumber all the Egyptians. But if these Assyrians, the Hyksos, are the ones who come down to take over the land, then they probably came down with a, a force of people to administrate and see to it with a much smaller group of people than the Israelites may have had. makes a lot of sense that they are more numerous and mightier than we. In verse 10, he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened that in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So again, it shows kind of a real pragmatic perspective. This guy is, you know, they're, they're warriors. They want to guard their flanks. They recognize these people are a potential problem. If somebody comes in to fight against this, this can be a big deal. Very practical policy for dealing with the situation one that we'd expect from an, an invading despot to be sensitive to threats to his regime. Uh, they recognize that the Hebrews are a separate nation of people in the borders of their newly annexed country. So what are they going to do? Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them. Smarter than the border enforcement of the United States, you know. Uh, what are their concerns? Two things. In the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us. Okay, that's one. Warfare, concern, security. What's the second one? That they would go up out of the land. Now think about that. They're also concerned for the security threat, but also they see the Hebrews as their property and their economic stability. This is their workforce. This is a huge economic issue for that country. Their economic stability is depending upon the productivity of the children of Israel. And so they come up with a solution that sort of addresses both. In verse 11, at least from their perspective, it does. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So it didn't work. All that they planned, you know, placing taskmasters over, the plan was to put the Hebrews into a more structured environment where their rulers would have more control and also to cause them pain and hardship so that there would be, you know, an attrition rate. They would die off on some level and then they would have less worry about them. And then to intentionally create oppressive work and an environment 
uh, trusting that the hardship would increase productivity, reduce numbers, solve both their problems. Seems like it ought to work on paper, you know, but it didn't. In fact, it did the opposite. Verse 12 says they, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied it. That's got to be frustrating. You know, it's like cutting up starfish and throwing them over the pier. You know, it's like, man, how come there's so many starfish? This does happen from time to time. Hardship can make a people stronger and even more numerous. You can make the case that the 400 years of affliction and that, that 40 years in the wilderness are, for the Jewish nation, absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary to forge the nation under the leadership of Joshua that without that training, like boot camp, they would never have been able to go into the land of Canaan and displace the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the others, as they did at God's direction. They needed that. No more than the United States of America would have been able to fight World War II on two fronts to an unconditional victory without 10 years of the Great Depression to harden and prepare us to the task. And I think you make a great case that was absolutely necessary for us in this nation. We may imagine that we can do things on our own. I mean, we may imagine all kinds of things. It doesn't make it so. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And now, if you are my brethren, if you are a believer in Christ, you're walking with Christ, that various trial that you've stumbled into, the Bible is very explicit. God is going to use this for your benefit in a powerful way, and you should see it. You should see it happen. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the testimony of believers in Christ. This and this and this happened. It was a terrible thing, but then God showed up. And it was amazing. And God did all this wonderful stuff. And, and I would have never guessed, but he put me in this position. And he blessed me with this and he blessed my family. And he blessed everything. It's amazing. It's pretty awesome. I mean, if you didn't know better, you'd think Christians were a bunch of Pollyannas. You know, it's, oh, it's going to be wonderful. No, no, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Now, it may be without God's presence that these forces would destroy us and the Israelites for that matter. With God's promises in his presence, working for us, working every hardship becomes a preparation for the blessing to harden and resolve God's purpose for us and in us. If we allow his work to go forward, that's the big if. If we allow God's work to go forward. Um, how many people give up and lose hope just before the purpose of God is revealed? And the answer is way too many. Way too many. We cannot be distracted. Especially today, folks, as we are looking forward to real difficulty in this nation and around the world in the days ahead. We have to be focused upon the Lord. We have to be focused upon his word. We cannot be moved from his purpose. And I know, as I am in my life, I experience all kinds of interesting distraction from the enemy. How he's trying to uh, take the foundations out from under my faith in Christ one way and another. And I know you guys are dealing with the same stuff. You live in the same world I do. And be wise. Be wise. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, the forces at work in this world are, are again working overtime to rattle our confidence in the Lord and in the Scripture. Nothing has changed. The very first words recorded from our enemy is an opportunity to cast doubt on the word of God. The scholars of our world, very, very smart people, much smarter than I, and much more learned, and on both accounts, better off. But not all, but I would say the vast majority have been brainwashed by the lies of the enemy. And there's a great example of that here in verse 11, the mention of the two cities that the Israelites are involved in building in verse, the last half of verse 11. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pithom and Ramesses. Now, archaeologists know a great deal about these cities. They were built right around the beginning of the 13th century B.C., 
by one of the most famous of all the pharaohs, Pharaoh Ramses. And scholars have taken a hold of this mention of these cities and of this date in the 13th century. And they actually claimed it for the Exodus. Well, because we have these cities here, then we know. And it's not an irrational idea. It's not like they're being crazy. But the problem is, is if you want to place the Exodus of Israel in the 13th century, and I know all this talk about timing and everything is probably not real interesting to you guys, but just give me a second here. If, if you want to put it in that century, there, there is no archaeological evidence of any Hebrew people in Egypt at the time of Ramses. There's no destruction in the land of Canaan following the time of Ramses. There's no destruction in Egypt to match up with the ten plagues of the book of Exodus. There is no chaos in the nation that takes place as would result from the ten plagues in the book of Exodus. And there is substantial evidence that the nation of Israel already exists in Canaan by the 13th century. It's mentioned in different places in Egyptian monuments just directly following the reign of King Ramses. They talk about Israel. And certainly it took them 40 years to get there and then to conquer, it, you know, it's just not reasonable. Time-wise, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. Scholars hold on to these cities and they make the claim that, well, if the exodus ever happened, it had to happen during this time frame. And part of the problem here, folks, is that the way that our world has changed in the last 200 years. Um, starting at the end of the 19th century, just before the beginning of the 20th century, academic scholars began to be accepted and looked upon with favor because of a philosophy issue that we call empiricism. The, the ability to look at things, and anybody who judged an issue or used the Bible as a reference point was looked down upon. And for this reason, a lot of times, if you guys are going to read commentaries or look up archaeological information, like for instance, if you ever look at a copy of Biblical Archaeology Review magazine, a lot of great information in there. None of those guys believe the Bible's the Word of God. None of them. And they're all high academic. They have great respect in the academic community all over the world, all those guys. And anybody, almost anybody, that is respected academically is going to be a person that is rejected the biblical perspective on anything. You have to be sensitive to that. Because that, that's a problem for me. I can't do that. I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater under those circumstances. Um, maybe the names are placed in this chapter by an editor to help us locate the area. Because the place where the Israelites lived were right in that same place. Python and Ramses are right there on the west side of the Nile Delta, in the same place where the land of Goshen was. Python is a little bit south of there, but Ramses is right in the middle of it. Okay? We know, and scholars agree, that this has to be more than 400 years before the Exodus, according to any reasonable time. Why would, oh, I'm sorry, wait, I have another quote for you, actually, from Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 47, verse 11, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land of Ramses. Well, now, Joseph took his father in there at least 400 years before the Exodus. Why is he using the same name of the city that didn't exist for 400 years? Because maybe the same editors wanted us to understand where it was. And everybody knew where the city of Ramses was. Good, good question. Um, scholars agree that that's 400 years before, according to any reasonable timeline. Why would this land, the land of Goshen, be called by that name so long before Pharaoh Ramses? You know, I don't, honestly, they don't care about that. Modern archaeologists, they don't want to hear about that. They just know the Exodus has to be in the 13th century. But check this out. If you move the event back 200 years from where they think it should be, crazy things happen. Like what? Suddenly there's a huge population of Semitic people in the Nile Delta, in the land of Goshen. 
We don't know exactly how many people, but it looks like it could be numerous communities of more than 25,000 people each stretching further south. And not just Semitic people. They're all Semitic, meaning they could be Jewish. But these people, as it appears, came and lived in this area with the permission of the governing authority originally. And as time passed, that relationship kind of eroded. And then it came to be an economic hardship and distress and suffering and even malnutrition and abuse. And then at a particular point, again, back in the 15th century, they just disappear. It's a huge population of people that could be Jews come in, they're prosperous, they multiply dramatically, they get along great, and then over a period of time, their relationship, until they're being abused, there's malnutrition, there's all kinds of problems, and then they just disappear. Well, who are those people? And where did they go? Coincidentally, just following that time, in the land of Canaan, just after that, there's some really serious destruction. In Jericho, gets burned to the ground. All The walls fall down, all kinds of problems. You know, and you ask somebody, well, could this be the Jews? They go, no, it's too early. It's 200 years too early. Well, maybe we ought to fix your clock. My gosh. And may other major cities, according to the scripture, conquered by Joshua. The scholars complain it can't be because the city of Ramses is mentioned here in verse 11. You know what? Honestly, hey, I, I don't know exactly what happened. And I, I'm not really that concerned about it. I know that the evidence is there. My confidence is in the Lord and in his word. And all of the rest of it is just a moving target and a blender. The opinions of archaeologists have been changing annually for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I imagine they're going to continue to do that. But the truth doesn't change. And that is the key. If you're interested in a really good video presentation on a lot of this stuff, it's a little bit lengthy. Patterns of Evidence in Exodus. You can get in the books. Really good. Excellent stuff. Got just some amazing people in there. Some, some really great archaeologists who disagree with me. You know, Manfred Bietek, uh, Austrian guy, probably the greatest living archaeologist in the world, is in there. And great stuff. You can get it on Netflix, really? Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Adam. Um, this period of hardship for the children of Israel went on for a very long time. Uh, 400 years. 320 years until the birth of Moses. Because you've got 80 years where Moses is 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. So 320 years until the birth of the deliverer Moses. At some point, these Assyrians, the Hyksos, lost traction and they were removed by the Egyptians who were ruling from Upper Egypt around Thebes, somewhere south down there. And, but all that we can tell is that the situation got worse for Israel. Look at verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service which they made them serve was with rigor. Rigor, the word from which we get rigor mortis. And uh, also the word for rigorous and meaning brutal, harsh, stringent, burdensome. The Hebrew word is padak. And uh, it's, it's translated rigor, also cruelty, harshness, severity, and cruelty. So that's a bad deal all around for these people. Here in verse 14, it makes reference to the mud bricks. And you can see in all different time periods of, of Egyptian history. But they're so important to the history specifically of Israel. Notice that making bricks wasn't the only service the Hebrews did. Again in 14, all manner of service in the field. So they did all kinds of labor. And they were a huge company of forced labor. Um, and at a certain point in time, we're going to see reference to uh, 600,000 males coming out of Egypt. Another interesting thing we've learned from the archaeology that this guy Manfred Bitek is doing in a varus in the land of Goshen there is that at around the time that these Semitic people, we believe they were the Jews, disappeared, the ratio of male to female was... Uh, 40% male, 60% female, which is a big deal in a huge community of people. So if you've got 60% females and you've got 600,000 people, plus you've got kids, you're talking about way in excess of 3 million people in that, in that situation. So a lot, a lot of people, and they're doing all kinds of things. Great, huge forced labor force. Um, 
I don't know, honestly, if we can imagine the kind of economic impact having such a huge labor force. Even now, when we have the armed forces take on a project, we still have to pay them. They all have to get paid. The loss of these slaves was not an option to the leaders of Egypt. And so here in verse 15, we skip forward in the narrative to at least close to the time of the birth of Moses. In verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shephara, like uh, Sapphira, almost, of uh, Acts chapter 5. And the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So, as the Egyptians continue in their concern of this huge group of foreign, foreign nationals living in their country, you should, by the way, never allow a large group uh, contingent of foreign nationals living in your country. They will undermine your national sovereignty. Just kind of keep that in mind somewhere. They come up with plan B. They're going to pressure the healthcare system. Sort of. They're going to pressure these women in a little bit of a different way uh, than we've experienced here. Uh, maybe hoping for a similar outcome as the one that we're going to experience, only for male children. And again, this, you know, in spite of what Manfred Bittek says, gives rise to, well, maybe these are the Jews. That's 60% women, 40% men. In addition to the fact that you have a real high infant mortality rate at the end of this whole situation, like we're 10 times the normal. Amazing. Um, They're thinking that, obviously, they can absorb the female population. And uh, you have to remember, folks, this is not a suggestion. Pharaohs, pharaohs don't make suggestions. It's not their way. They're not accustomed. Pharaoh is the law. You do not make eye contact with a pharaoh, ever, ever. To make eye contact with a pharaoh is a punishable offense. And if he likes you, you'll survive. If you accidentally make eye contact with a pharaoh, you don't make eye contact with a pharaoh. He is the law. He is the living God in Egypt. Um, You don't speak to pharaoh unless he asks you a question. And then God help you if you have to respond to pharaoh and say something. Pharaoh has never heard the word no in his life. From the time he was a small child, from the time he was a small child, nobody made eye contact with Pharaoh. To make eye contact with a person tells them that you and I are on equal terms. This is why when you do that, going down a dark alley, somebody starts swinging. But um, uh, in reality, you don't make eye contact with Pharaoh. He didn't fight his own fights. He had big, ugly guys to do that. Um, For Pharaoh to, these women to be called into this situation is very, very bad. And I really would like, take some time to dwell upon that. Think about that. You know, what, here you are, you're a midwife, you're taking care of all these slaves, working like crazy, people being born all over the place, and you're busy, 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 all this stuff to do, and you love your job, it's really great, baby's being born, isn't it wonderful? Soldier shows up at your door, hey, Pharaoh wants to talk to you. What? You think you get upset when that phony call from the IRS comes on your phone? You think that bothered you? I talked to a lady not too long ago. She had a cow. She called him back six times, you know. Had to explain to her, the IRS doesn't call you on the phone. (laughs) They just take your stuff and let you wonder, you know, basically. But when the soldier shows up at the door and says, Pharaoh wants to see you, it's like, oh, my gosh, my life is over. You know, what have I done? Terrible. Very bad. People that help in the care of infants, I would think, my opinion, I would think are generally very nice people. And these poor ladies have to be thinking, what has God done to us? How could God put us in this pickle? How could God put us in this situation? How many times does God do that in the lives of people? And then down at the other end of the whole mess, they go, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, there's a guy, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Um, Nice guy. I've listened to him on the radio from time to time. And uh, he used to be on staff at Calvary Chapel, West Covina. 
out here. And while he was here, he was, uh, he fell madly in love with this young girl. And he was just, just unbelievably, I mean, just over, had, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, couldn't think. He was messed up. And he just cried out to, threw himself on the driveway. God, help me, please. Touch the heart of this girl, you know, please bring her around. I got to, it's getting, you know, and she, not a chance. Not, no interest, no interest in him for all the world. His name's Lloyd Pulley. And anyway, <laughs> Lloyd was like just heartbroken and grieved and, and eventually, you know, the passage of time and he just was busted up and just devastated. <laughs> Years went by and the Lord moved him out to New Jersey. He's a pastor out there. He's serving. Met his wife, this wonderful lady. Married, he's got three kids. He's happy as he can be, you know. One day he came back out here to California for a conference and he flew out 15 years later. Comes out, you know, he's, he's walking around. He sees that girl and he goes, Oh, Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much, Father. You saved my life. You know, God knows. God knows. You don't know. God knows. Listen to the Lord. He knows what's going on. These ladies, I'm thinking, they've got to think, why, why? You know, what's the possible? They find themselves in a situation where doing either possibility is unthinkable. Either one of those possibilities to go in and take the life of the little boy or to not go in and not take the life of the little boy and answer to the Pharaoh for that. You know, and, and it's interesting in such a situation, sooner or later, you work your way around to the option that is less unthinkable than the other. Unfortunately, that's what happens to us. And what people often feel, fail to see, or maybe almost always fail to see it, because the thing that is so glaring in front of you is the opportunity to lose your life and lose everything that you have. But what we can't see is that God actually has presented you with a huge opportunity, an opportunity to honor the truth, to honor him above your own life. It doesn't come every day. Not every person born on this planet has an opportunity to honor God above their own life. Above your purpose, above your selfish inclination. Now, if you're basically a selfish person presented with this great opportunity to honor God, it's going to be of no avail. There's no hope that you're going to make that choice. You're going to be like, should I? Oh, yeah. Forget it. No way. Not going to happen. But if, on the other hand, your life is operating with God's truth, and, and then the, the opportunity is fairly presented to you, it, you actually you can make a decision that will honor the Lord and reveal his glory in your life. And what it boils down to, guys, is the issue, and, and like so many others in my life, I look at the situation and I judge, if anybody is going to suffer harm here, and it's in my power to choose, then I will see to it that I am the one that suffers harm. That's the decision. That's what it boils down to. If I have to choose between you getting hurt and me getting hurt, and it's my choice, I want to see to it that I'm the one who suffers loss in that situation. And isn't this what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians when he, he really chews out the church for going to court against other believers? And he says, why do you not rather suffer loss? So many people read that and say, what? What's he thinking? Well, what he's thinking is, you're a Christian. That's what he's thinking. And if you choose between your, your loss and somebody else's loss, and it's in your power to decide, let me ask you a question. What would Jesus do? Isn't that what Jesus did? And that's what we should do. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And that's what he means. Take up your cross daily. In Second Chronicles 16, 9, it tells us, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world to find that person. Verse 17 tells us that the midwives feared God. 
and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they saved the male children alive. Now, these ladies were facing a pressure that I think is hard for us to understand. The pressure to compromise their values. Their lives were hanging by a thread. I'm sure they spent a lot of time thinking, what are we going to do? But in the final analysis, they, like we all do, they surrounded to the master passion of their life. And you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, you are going to surrender to the master passion of your life. Now, if that master passion is you, you're going to be selfish. You're going to make the call for your benefit. But if that master passion is your Lord, Jesus Christ, then you're going to make a different call. And the passion in their life was the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. A good place to start, the fear of the Lord. Amazing how the Lord's truth had been sustained over the 400 years in slavery as the nation grew in a foreign land. Psalm 115.11 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He is your protector. You cannot stick out your neck far enough for God. He will watch out for you. He will watch out for you. The promises of God are wonderful and amazing to those that honor Him and walk with Him, to those that fear the Lord. How great is God's blessing to those that follow the Lord. Notice the encouragement to those who serve the nation as a king. And actually, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. This is what the book of Moses says that kings should do. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and the statutes. How do we gauge the fear of the Lord in the life of a person? I think, I mean, reasonably, what you have to do is look at it in a perspective with the present opposition. What is the opposition against a person? For so many people, there's no opposition to their reverence to God. For some, on the other hand, it is a life and death situation. There are men and women out there today that know, they've been told in no uncertain terms, that if you continue to preach the word of this Jesus, we are going to kill you. Not just a few. You know, I encourage you to go to the uh, Voice of the Martyrs website and look through the hundreds of prayer requests for people that are asking for prayer because they're in the danger of losing their lives. I'm reminded of a young man I read about in August's this past August, Maoists in northern India brutally murdered a missionary serving in Odisha State. The leader of the Maoist group came to this man, his name was Jijo, came to his home one evening, set his house on fire, took Jijo into the forest. The next day the villagers found Jijo's body along with a note forbidding future evangelism in the area. Jijo had been shot multiple times. The main reason he was killed is that through his ministry, 44 Maoists had received Christ as personal savior and turned away from their Maoist activities. Maoists are active in several eastern Indian states, including Odisha, where they are waging a guerrilla war in favor of the communist rule. Now, maybe he didn't know he was in danger. Maybe he thought the Maoists were just nice guys and they wouldn't mind 44 of their people turning to follow Jesus. Maybe not. That, my friends, that is the fear of the Lord. He cared more what God thought of him than any man or any group of men. And he surely knew, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fourth chapter of the book of, third chapter of the book of Daniel, where they talk to King Nebuchadnezzar and they tell him, our God is certainly able to deliver us out of your hand. 
And if not, we will not bow down before your image. They recognized God can deliver them. But if not, we're going to honor the God who set us here. The fear of God is a thing that needs to be cultivated. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are all going to stand in front of God. We all got plenty to answer for already. I mean, I do. You know, I imagine you guys are like me. You know, and uh, in, the, in the few days that I have left, wow, I want to see, see the Lord's hand revealed. I want to see his spirit work. The fear of God is a thing to be cultivated. It doesn't happen by accident. The other thing happens by accident, not the fear of the Lord. Verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, "Uh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, It may well be that there were some truth in what they said to the king of Egypt. Uh, How much truth, we will never know. But we can know of a certainty that these ladies were moved, they were motivated by their responsibility to God more than they were moved by the fear of man. And that's the key. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And this, of course, is from a guy who knows. So this Pharaoh saw the futility of killing these women. Not that it was a a big deal to him. That's it. They're done. But for some reason, he didn't kill them. Because it didn't make sense or because Psalm 115.11 You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Or somewhere, chapter 16, verse 7. I can't really tell. My hole punch is right in the middle of it. I'm sorry. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I think Proverbs? Yeah, I think so. 16, 7. Verse 20 says, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Lord continues to bless the nation, multiply them. And as far as these ladies, he blesses them as well. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how the Lord provides households for them. He does. And this, you know, again, for a woman in this culture, the ultimate evidence of God's goodness toward them is to be surrounded with your family as their names are immortalized in the scripture, they're an important part of the heritage of the nation Israel. When you meet them, you can ask them about how the Lord arranged for their households. Psalm 84, verse 11, The Lord God is a sun and shield. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So Pharaoh commanded his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. This is, again, plan B. Interesting, the site of the Semitic settlement in Avaris, up in the land of Goshen, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, the excavations continue. It's discovered that there was, at a particular time, there's an inordinate number of infant deaths and burials, sometime, somewhere around 10 times the norm. The other interesting thing is that in the same time frame, burials of adults were 60-40 female-male. And that uh, female-male population, again, according to archaeology, is way out of whack. But, of course, these couldn't be the Jews. It's 200 years too early. Actually, if you take the time to see that video on Netflix, there's even some evidence in there that is more impressive. It's pretty awesome stuff. What an unbelievably and dastardly brutal thing to do to man the death of infant children at the hands of their own parents. Almost as bad as what Satan has done in our world, demanding that we destroy the lives of unborn children at our own free will and convenience, where selfishness is certainly the the driving force. And of course, the raw numbers of individuals involved in the U.S. 
and in the modern world, hundreds of times more than the children in Egypt. So in Egypt, the stage is set. And by the way, what did God do to Egypt? Bad things. Bad things. Destroyed the nation, didn't he? Killed all the firstborn. Not to mention all the rest that were killed in the the rest of the plagues and those who starved. So in Egypt, as we finish this chapter, guys, the stage is set. The stage is set for the deliverer that the Lord will send, the one that they have waited for. And for us as well. The stage is set. We're ready. We're ready for the one that we have waited for. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And this is a, this is a request to believers. You, know, you, you see this verse used all the time as reaching out to non-believers, but it's really to believers. Christ is reaching out to those who believe he died for their sins. Open the door. Commune with him. Be with him. Allow him to work in your heart and see the fear of God by his spirit worked in your life. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word, for your spirit that works in our hearts. And we want to pray. Father, give us wisdom to follow your leading. Help us to hear your voice, even as we read the scripture. Father, let us take to heart the amazing, Father, witness of these men and women in in days gone by who counted the cost, who raised their hand, refused to compromise because of their own selfishness or the influence of this world. Father, cause us to be your witnesses. Stand us up. Hold us up against the storm. Use us as your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.